Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Genesis, chapters six and seven. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it, and coat it, coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be three hundred cubits long, fifty cubits wide, and thirty cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. The Lord then said to Noah, "Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth for forty days and forty nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made." And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. And after the seven days, the flood waters came on the earth. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out: people and animals, and the creatures that moved along the ground, and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for a hundred and fifty days. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, I was eleven、uh, years old, and I had just become a Christian. And I happened to be in the school cafeteria for lunch. And if there's one thing that I knew that Christians did or practice, it's, it's that before they eat, Christians pray. Uh, the dilemma was that I was at my school cafeteria, and none of my friends were Christian. So either I could pray and look like a freak, or I could not pray and just completely disown and dissociate my relationship, my new relationship with God. So I was faced with like this conundrum. So, so what does this eleven-year-old boy do? He gets creative. He pretends to tie his shoe. Puts his head underneath the table, and quickly says, "Dear God, thank you for this food. May it nourish my body. Amen." And I quickly pop up from the table as if nothing had happened. And it's funny to me that、um, out of all the memories that I have in my life, it's funny that out of all the memories I have, this is one of the memories. That is forever seared into my brain, and I think a part of the reason why I still remember this moment is because, as an immigrant to this country, my my main goal in life was always just to assimilate, just just to be like everyone else, to to fit in. I I already felt like I stuck out like a sore thumb just because of my ethnicity, because in my neighborhood no one looked like me. But now to stick out because of my faith, in addition to my ethnicity, well, that was like, that was like a double whammy. And so all I wanted to do was just to stick in. But like having like this new faith now, all of a sudden, made me feel like I. It almost made me feel like I had to stick out, and so there was this tension or this dilemma、uh, that I was experiencing now that I became a Christian and. I think that that tension that I felt was right.
If we are going to authentically identify ourselves as followers of Jesus in 2023, there are going to be times in our secular culture where we have to zig when our culture is zagging. Not all the time, but there will be times where we have to zig when our culture is zagging. Soren Kierkegaard, uh, the Danish philosopher, once said, if that Christianity is going to thrive, if it's really going to thrive, Christianity has to be a sign of contradiction to our culture. And so my question to every one of us here today is this, how contradictory is your life? Not how hypocritical is your life, that's different. The question here is how contradictory is your life? How different is your life? How peculiar is your life? How strange or weird is your life? Because guess what? The faith that we believe in is very peculiar. It's very different. It's very unique. And so if you're joining us here for the first time, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. And we're doing a series on Genesis all the way to the end of the year. And today we're taking a look at the iconic story of Noah and the flood. And guess what? Noah's life was very contradictory. And he did not assimilate to the culture that he was in. Take a look with me at verse 14 and 22 where it says this. God says to Noah, so make for yourself an ark of cypress wood. Joanna Gaines likes to work with shiplap. Here we're told that Noah has to work with cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. And it says that Noah did everything just as God commanded him. And so to give you a little bit of context into Genesis 6, here is Noah in the middle of a hot Middle Eastern desert building a boat because God tells him that a massive flood is coming. Now keep in mind that Noah is not a character on, in Fast and the Furious working on his car in a private garage. No, Noah is working on an ark out in public for everyone to see in the middle of a desert because a flood is coming. And this is just conjecture because I'm reading into the text when I say this, but based upon the fact that no one got in the ark besides Noah and his family, no one, this is just conjecture, but I'm assuming that because no one else got in the ark, that while all these people are watching Noah build the ark, that there must have been just a little bit of a social cost, not a social benefit, but a social loss and a cost for Noah. I can imagine people coming up with their phones, just video, videoing Noah, building a boat in the middle of the desert, posting on social media, saying that this guy, this guy's anti-science. He is on the wrong side of history, not on the right side of history. And yet what we read in verse 22, even perhaps in the midst of ridicule and a social cost to Noah, it says in verse 22, Noah did everything that, that God had commanded him. He would rather be weird and obey Christ than to be socially accepted and not obey Christ. You know, if you've ever been to uh, Austin or Portland before, I don't know if any of you are from there, 
But what, what is the motto for the cities of Austin and Portland? It's keep Austin weird or keep Portland weird. That is their apostles' creed. That's their mantra, their, their doctrine, their, their value, their belief. And what, is it, what does it mean to be weird? It means to be different. It means to stick out. It means that you're cutting against the green. It means that you're, you're, you're zigging while everyone is zagging. Or to put it more in a theological framework, what does it mean to be weird? It means to be holy. Being holy doesn't mean that you walk around with prayer hands. Being holy literally means to be set apart. This is why in the Old Testament, even pots and pans were declared holy because they were set apart for ceremonial use. And so what does it mean to be weird or to be holy? It means that there's something different about you. You're set apart. You're not, you haven't assimilated to become like every single other person that's out there. And for me personally, as an Asian American, that is very hard. Because for me, every fiber of my being just wants to fit in. I just want to assimilate. I just want to be adjacent. I don't want to stick out. I already stick out because of my ethnicity. I don't want to stick out because of my, my faith too. But now that I'm older, I definitely do see the dangers of just assimilating and just being adjacent to a particular culture. On the other hand, I also see the danger of just wanting to be different for the sake of being different. And so you rebrand yourself, you change your look, you change your hair, you change the way that you dress, you identify with a, bit, a different group of people because when you're just trying to be different for the sake of being different to feel special about yourself, what ends up happening is that when you're just being different for the sake of being different, like it, I don't know, there, there's something about that that turns itself on its head. So for example, hip, the hipster movement, the hipster movement was born out of a desire to be nonconformist, but now that everyone is hipster, like it's sort of turned itself on its head. The reason why we are called to be different or to be peculiar is not just so that we can feel special about ourselves. The reason why we're called to be different is because of our faith and the values that our faith has which are oftentimes not cultural, but counter-cultural. And that's why we're called to be peculiar, strange, different, and weird. The historian, the agnostic historian, Tom Holland, who's very sympathetic to Christianity, by the way, recently, not that long ago, wrote a thick history book called Dominion. And in a panel session that Tom Holland was in, not to be confused with Spider-Man, uh, he was asked a, a question by Christians. How are Christians supposed to live in a secular culture? And you know what this historian, this agnostic historian said? How are you to live? Simple. Let Christianity be weird. Don't try to be cool. Just let it be what it is, which is Weird, And oftentimes when the church tries to be cool, it ends up not being cool. Rather, we are called to be a living paradox where we're in the world but not really of the world. Ezra Klein, a New York Times colonist, he wrote this. 
What I, as an outsider to Christianity, have always found most beautiful about it is how strange it is. In the second century, let's do some history. There's a letter to a, um, uh, an ancient person named Diognetus or Diognetus. And we don't know who the letter is, but we do know who it's, who it's addressed to, Diognetus. And the author says this about second century Christians. He refers to them as a different species of people because of the way that they live. They're weird. They're peculiar. They're strange. There's something very different about them. And my question to us here in 2023 in New York City is this. How strange are you? How weird is your life? How much of a nonconformist are you? How much of a zigger are you in the midst of everyone zagging? Or have you just assimilated to look like every single other person? And not in an unattractive way, your weirdness, but in an, in an attractive way. How different is your life? Maybe it's uh, a Saturday and your roommate is like, you're volunteering again? <laughs> again? Like, what? what is this organization called Hope for what? Hope for New York? Like, what is that? And why are you volunteering again? Or maybe it's you politically believe in what? Like most people I know that politically believe in that, I like despise them, but I, I kind of like you, so that's interesting. Like, why do you believe in that? Or you've been dating this girl for how long? You still haven't slept with them yet? You're not gonna even like move in with them? Wow, that's, that's weird. Or you got tickets to a lower level game on Sunday, but you're not going to go because you have to go to church? That's strange. That's different. Or how, how much of your money do you give to God and the church? Like, how can you even trust the church? Like, how much of your paycheck are you going to give every single month? That's kind of strange. Or you're in your late 30s found the perfect guy, tall, dark, handsome, respectful, successful, great personality, total package. And you're telling your friend, you found the perfect person, but you're hesitating. And your friend is like, why? Well, it's because they don't share my faith. And I'm not in my 20s anymore. I'm in my 30s. And I, I don't know if I can do this. That's weird. That's strange. Let me give you one more. If you really want to be weird, if you really want to be different, if you really just want to zig while everyone is zagging in an age where everyone, even Christians, are deconstructing their faith, you really want to be different? Radically trust God even when you feel like he's broken your trust. That's different. Radically trust God, even when you feel like he's broken your trust. And that's what Noah does here. In Hebrews 11, and by the way, it's interesting to me how many people throughout the scriptures 
actually talk about Noah. Uh, it's Ezekiel and it's many others. But the writer of Hebrews talks about Noah like this. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. By faith, he radically trusted God. Uh, many, many moons ago, I found myself up in the clouds in Asia because I wanted to bungee jump off of Asia's highest bungee jump. Like, like I could see the clouds <laughs> beneath me. And keep in mind, I am, I am terrified of heights. I was scared just going up the elevator up the crane. And then all of a sudden, I found myself on this super narrow platform where I had to just jump off. And I'm not, I'm not harnessed to like a seat or a chair like on a roller coaster. I just had this cord, <laughs> this bungee cord. And so I could either not do it, which I desperately wanted to do, or I could have faith in this cord. Now, reason would suggest that this cord is going to save my life. It's going to be fine. Relax. But sometimes we need more than just reason. For in order for us to make sense or certainty of something, we need more than just reason. Sometimes we just have to commit to something. And it is that commitment, in addition to reason, that makes us more and more certain of something. So what did I have to do? Even though reason would suggest that this bungee cord is going to keep me safe, I just have to commit to the jump. And so I did. And I held that thing as if, I don't know, if it snapped, that would have been fine. But I held that thing so tightly. And guess what? I was fine. But it needed to jump. And I needed to commit in order to know whether that thing was going to save me or not. And you know what? All of us, whether we're jumping off a, bungee, uh, a crane on a bungee jump, whether we're religious or we're not religious, we all have faith in something. We all place our trust in something. Lee Strobel uh, once said this, to continue in atheism, I would need to believe that nothing produces everything, non-life produces life, randomness produces fine-tuning, Chaos produces information, unconsciousness produces consciousness, and non-reason produces reason. I simply didn't have that much faith. We all place our faith or trust in something. The question is, what are you placing your faith and your trust in? Now, you might be here saying, well, I believe in God. My problem is I don't trust him. And as, again, as I said before, if you really want to be weird... If you really want to be strange, radically trust God, even if you feel like he's broken your trust, which is what, and we read about the trust in Noah in verse four, it says, seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. If you are a student of the Bible, you know that the number 40 doesn't only appear once, but many times throughout Scripture because the word 40, the number 40, not the word, the number 40 is a symbol of testing. The Israelites wandered in the desert for 40 years. 
Jesus is tested and tempted by the devil for 40 days. And so the number 40 is symbolic of some kind of testing uh, that the other person is experiencing. And you know what? If you are going to follow Jesus today, if the Israelites were tested, if Jesus himself was tested, what in the world makes you think that you will be immune to testing? You will be tested too. I don't know if anyone ever told you that when you became a Christian, but you too will be tested. But you know what is on the other side of testing? Treasure. For the Israelites, it was a promised land. You know what Jesus' treasure was? You. On the other side of testing is treasure. Now, you might be thinking, well, I don't have, I don't see any treasures. (laughs) I've trusted Jesus. And maybe you have for 10 years, maybe 20 years. Israelites were tested for 40 years. Some scholars think that Noah built the ark over the course of 50 plus years. And I, maybe, maybe at a certain point, Noah said or thought, I don't know if this ridicule is worth it in year 36 of building this boat. But by faith and trust, he kept hammering away for over potentially 50 plus years. Dallas Willard, a philosopher at USC, uh, was once asked the question, why do you follow Jesus? And his response was, well, who else did you have in mind? Yourself? Science? Is that going to save your life? Who else did you have in mind? Noah is tested for up to 50 years, but instead of leaning in or leaning out of his faith, he leans into it even more. And in verse 1, we read this. Then uh, The Lord then said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. The ark, in many ways, is a vessel of salvation. You know what's really fascinating? During the infanticide by Pharaoh, Moses' mother wants to save his life. So she puts this little boy Moses in a basket, it says in English. You know what the Hebrew word for that word basket is? Ark. She places Moses in an ark. And it is that vessel that saves him. Just as it is this vessel that saves Noah and his family. And what this vessel, this ark, is really pointing to is the person of Jesus Christ himself. They enter into the ark. The word Christian is only used two times in the New Testament. More often than not, followers of Jesus in the New Testament are referred to those who are in Christ. Just as Noah went into the ark, we are called to be in Christ. In a few hours, I'm going to, I think we're going to JFK. Um, My wife does all the planning, so oftentimes I, sometimes I'll jump in a car and be like, where are we going again? Um, But I think we're going to JFK for a flight. Now, if I'm going to receive the benefits of a plane or a flight, I have to have the right relationship with the plane. 
I can't be next to the plane if I'm going to receive the benefits of the plane. I can't be on top of it or below it. I have to have the right positional relationship with the plane if I'm going to receive the benefits of the plane. The only way I can receive the benefits of the plane is to actually be in the plane. And that's how I can arrive to my destination. And similarly, if we're going to have a relationship with Jesus, our position with him matters. And it's not enough just to be adjacent to Jesus or near Jesus, but we are called to be in Jesus. We are called to be in Christ if we're going to be receiving the benefits uh, of Jesus and what he has uh, done for us. And that requires a little bit of faith. Uh, I remember some years ago, I was on a flight back home, and it was by far the scariest flight I had ever been on. Um, it's the kind of scene in a movie where you experience a little turbulence and like the drinks are flying all over the place. But if you've ever experienced turbulence before, it's for like 20 seconds. This was 20 minutes of turbulence. My wife is vomiting in a bag. The dude next to me is dropping F-bombs left and right. And we were coming back home from uh, the DR, so a lot of people spoke Spanish. And Spanish is a, such a romantic language, but it's also very dramatic. It's everyone's like, Dios. <laughs> like, everyone is crying out loud, and everyone is like, everyone is, like, there was one woman in the front that was praying to God. Now, here's the thing. There were some people that did not have a lot of faith <laughs> in the pilot or this vessel. There were some people that are probably trying to act composed and have some semblance of faith. But whether you had a lot of faith or a little faith, it didn't really matter at the end of the day. We all received the benefits of the pilot landing the plane safely. And here in this room, there are some of us with a lot of faith, and we trust God no matter what. And there are some of us that are like, man, I don't know if I can trust God anymore because he does not have a proven track record in my life. But I want you to know whether you have a lot of faith or even just a small modicum of faith, you are still in the ark and his presence is still with you. And his righteousness at the end of the day is the only thing that we need. We read here in this text that it was because of Noah's righteousness not his family's. It was because of Noah's righteousness that all of his family members were able to be saved. But what we do know of Noah is that he wasn't perfectly righteous, which is why in Ezekiel, Ezekiel writes this, uh, if a country sins against me by being unfaithful, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they could save only themselves. By their righteousness, declares the sovereign Lord. As righteous as Noah, Daniel, and Job were, there was a limit to their righteousness. Why? Because even the best of men are men at best. And what this verse is ultimately pointing to is the fact that we need someone greater than Noah, more perfect, more righteous, through whom we can receive the benefits of being in an ark and finding salvation. And what it's ultimately pointing to is the one who was on a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee during a storm. And all the disciples are freaking out on this boat. And they say, teacher, do something. And it is on this boat that Jesus calms the storm. 
And the disciples say, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And what this verse is ultimately pointing to, the ark and Noah himself, is pointing to Jesus and how we are called to be in uh, the person of Christ. But what I also want you to know, that it's not enough for us just to be in Christ. What I also want you to know is that Christ is in you. His presence is in you. In verse 15 and 16, we read something really fascinating that at times we gloss over. And it says this, this, these are the instructions about the ark. This is how you're to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof and opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower middle and upper decks. Now, when we read something like this, we're thinking, this, what, like, how is this relevant or germane to my life at all? I don't even know what a cubit is. And by the way, it's about 18 inches, a foot and a half uh, from, from your fingertip to your elbow, uh, based upon archaeological evidence. But what's fascinating about this is that oftentimes when we think about the ark, what is the first image that comes to your mind? It's a wooden Titanic, right? But when you take a look at the dimensions of this ark, what it really was was a floating shoebox. It was a rectangle with three layers, a lower, middle, and upper layer. And what's fascinating is that oftentimes in Scripture, the parts that we gloss over, God does seem to give specific directions on how to architect and build things, such as the tabernacle and the temple. And so if you take a look at this picture... The tabernacle also had three layers, a courtyard, a ho the holy place, and the holiest of holies where God dwelt. You know what's also interesting? In Genesis 1 and 2, when God is making the world, he makes the dry land. Then he makes this land called Eden. And then we know in Eden, there is a garden. And in the middle of the garden is the tree of life. And what what all of these directions, these architectural blueprint directions are really pointing to is it's all the same thing. And what is that? It's talking about the presence of God in the ark. The ark in many ways was a micro Eden, a remnant of humanity, animals in the ark, Noah stepping off the ark as the new Adam called to populate the world and fulfill the cultural mandate. It is a floating Eden and inside this vessel, just like the holiest of holies, just like the garden where he walked and talked with Eden, was his presence. We are not only in Christ, but as a temple of God, you have to know that Christ is also in you. And when you realize that the presence of God is in your life, at a certain point, you just stop caring what other people think. If you realize the, the, the presence of God in your life, you don't care anymore what the culture or the world thinks about your beliefs, your values, or your peculiar faith. Because at a certain point, Christianity does make you eccentric. The word eccentric is actually a combination of two Greek words, ek, kentron. Ek means out, kentron means of center. 
When you're eccentric, it doesn't mean that you're just zany. It means you're out of center. Copernicus, during the Middle Ages, said that the earth was ekkentron. It was not in the center. It was out of center. And as followers of Jesus, what we do is that we eventually have a new orbit in our life because he dwells within us where we displace ourselves and we place Christ at the center of our lives. And what that means is that when you do that, there will be times where you look a little eccentric, a little different, a little weird because of what you believe. But when you realize the presence of God in your life, it'll give you the boldness to be that way without shrinking back into shame. You know what's so funny is that I began this sermon by talking about how I was so ashamed to pray in front of my friends before I ate. Well, some years later, not that many years later, now that I'm a pastor, it's funny because every time I go to an event now, like birthday parties and wedding, I always get asked to pray. It's like, Pastor, pray for. Like, you can't, priesthood of all believers, you can't pray? No, it's like, no, you gotta pray. And it's funny in God's humor that now I just have to pray in front of Christians and non Christians, like, all the time. But you know what? I'm okay with that now. I'm okay being a little bit different from my faith and my values. And I find a lot of comfort in the fact that I'm okay with that because he's in me. I'm not just in him, he's in me. He's my new orbit, he's my new center. I'm not the center of my life, he is. And the more you place him at the center, it'll give you the courage to not fear and to be a sign. How strange is your life? How weird is it? As Kierkegaard would say, is your life serving as a sign of contradiction Or has it assimilated to become like everyone else? What can you do this week to be different? Let's pray together. Lord, uh, there's a part of us, if we're all honest, where we just want to fit in. Uh, We don't like being ostracized or or being on the margins. But uh, oftentimes, if we're going to authentically faithfully follow you, it does mean that we have to be a little bit different. There are times where we have to zig when our culture zags. Give us a moxie, the fortitude, the boldness to do that. Help us to be different. Help us to be holy with the way that we live our lives. Give us the strength to do that. Give us the community, the village strength to do that as well. In your name I pray. Amen.